Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed writer Siri Husvet on a range of women artists ranging from Artemisia Gentileschi to Louise Bourgeois. And this week I am so excited to say that we speak to Marilyn Minter. But before we get to this, I'm delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Ocular, working with a select group of just over 200 of the world's leading galleries Ocular.com provides online access to the best of contemporary art. You can use the platform to search for artworks by exceptional artists. You can also use the platform to keep up to date with exhibitions showing at leading galleries around the globe. Ocular magazine publishes compelling articles on contemporary art. For over a decade, it has published interviews with leading art world figures in its Ocular conversation series. In 2016, the magazine published an interview with today's guest. Marilyn Minter. And if you want to learn more about her practice or other incredible artists, do visit ocular.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the renowned painter, photographer and filmmaker Marilyn Minter. A legend on the New York art scene for over 50 years, Marilyn Minter is a pioneer of electrically graphic photorealist painting which takes the form of some of the most criticised elements of culture, from high fashion to female desire, to explore how advertising and the media have set the stereotypes of beauty, behaviour and sexuality. Cropping her images and zooming in on highly charged, at times erotic images, Minter's brightly saturated paintings of a tongue or a high heel are highly ambiguous in both subject and aesthetic value. From the contradictory questions around, is it beautiful? Is it abject? Is it pretty? Or is it dirty? The work almost forms into an abstraction, with acidic tones and hazy finishes making it unclear as to whether we are looking at a photograph or a painting. Minter doesn't stop at traditional art. She has taken to the mainstream and made works to appear on Times Square billboards or the backdrop of a Madonna concert. She is invested in all forms of culture, assessing wherever art has become disregarded and interpreted as low culture, opening up the question even wider. Born in Louisiana, Minter grew up in and attended university in Florida, and it was when studying when she embarked on her first well-known photographic series of her mother, swept up in the impossible fantasy of glamour, that she was praised by the late Diane Arbus, who at the time was a visiting tutor. In the 70s, Minter moved to New York City. Settling in the East Village scene, she challenged how both popular media and pop art treated women as unrealistic, as subjects of comparison rather than real people in subjects considered debased, 
She has since exhibited in the world's most renowned museums across the globe. And this spring will open up a new exhibition at LGDR featuring portraits of the likes of Lizzo to Lady Gaga, Gloria Steinem to Monica Lewinsky. And I can't wait to find out more. Marilyn Minter, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, that's a great introduction. I hope I could live up to it. (laughs) Can I take you with me everywhere? Absolutely. (laughs) So Marilyn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I have been such a fan of your work for a while now. I think, funnily enough, the first time I ever saw your work was on the walls of a bedroom in Gossip Girl, which I watched as a teenager which is such an interesting thing in itself in terms of how we consume art. But your work has affected me for its ability to interrogate culture and question pleasure, desire, glamour and shame. And I love this quote you've said, I'm not trying to define or criticise culture. I'm trying to make you feel all these things when you look, the pleasure of looking, but also the shame, because you want to look even though the images make you hate yourself. So I want to start by asking you, how do you want us to feel in front of your work? You know, whatever I decide to do, it comes from trying to make a picture of the time I live in, which is really contradictory, constantly contradictory. And I think about how much I love working with debased subject matter, pornography, glamour. I mean, they're both considered superficial and shallow and contemptuous at the same time. And I think that that's where my interest lies, that how can these things be so dismissed? Why isn't everybody interrogating them? And they're starting to. Women are starting to. There's so much baked-in misogyny. I mean, there's so much hatred for really successful young women. If there's a way to tear them apart, the culture's going to do it. And I'm finally seeing whether these young women that are being taken apart fight back. And that's really glorious for me. It's like a real change. I can see the generational change. I mean, people can dismiss this work so easily because they could just say, oh, it's fashion. Well, what is fashion? You know, fashion is basically the way you dress is telling everyone what tribe you're from. And if you don't care about it at all, that's a tribe too. What is fashion? Is fashion make you feel good about yourself? It also makes you feel like shit. You know, you're never going to look like that. But it gives you lots of pleasure. And it's all of these investigations. I want to put all of that in the same picture. And if I can do it, I succeed. Sometimes I can't. But I try. That's my goal, is to have both sides all the time. Because that's what the world is. That's how I see it anyway. I just question constantly, why do we have these knee-jerk reactions about everybody? There's enough room for everybody. But I think what's so fascinating is even in your lifetime, I guess you've seen, you know, having lived through the 70s and this kind of culture shift and how we look at images and sort of from what gaze, you know, we're still looking at the media uh, from a very male gaze. Absolutely. It's baked in. Look at the way people just shamed Madonna recently. Mm, Exactly, exactly. You know, like, well, how are you supposed to age and be a rock star? Do people shame Mick Jagger? How do you age? How do you feel good about yourself? I love what she said. I've been criticized my entire career. I'm not going to pay any attention to it now. And I thought, well, that's a perfect answer. And she's paving the way for other women rockers to age. You know, and they want to look like that. Fuck it. So what? 
<laughs> if you feel good about yourself, fine. I'm not going to make fun of you because maybe your plastic surgery is not the plastic surgery that Helen Mirren has or somebody, you know, who is acceptable for aging the way they age. Yeah, I think it's also just so interesting. Where does that even come from? It's like, what are these sort of Western idealized of news? It's baked in misogyny. But if you re-examine it, you could find it. No, absolutely. I'm so interested about the sort of seed of that image, though, as well. And when I think about these early historical works that really have a particular male gaze, Titian's Venus of Urbino or Botticelli's right. Venus or something. All tits and ass in those days, you know. <laughs> but exactly. But that's like sort of still carrying on. I mean, how do you think it's meant to make us feel? I mean, shame as a woman because we aren't living up to this idealized person because it's so interesting the kind of control we have as women in this. We day have a lot of power if you're if you're young and beautiful. There's a certain innate power that no one really can put their finger on. You know, I think there really are people starting to wake up to we have some power here. You know, but we've just been resting that kind of control. When I started doing the hardcore porn, it was just the very beginning of women. I just thought everyone thought like I did, but there was this nascent pro-sex feminist thought out there about women owning the agency of desire and amusement for their own pleasures and making porn for themselves. And what turns women on is being desired. That, I think, is a healthy thing. And um, so I'm not saying turn off that ever. You know, men know they're desirable too. Beauty is very powerful. But your generation, I'm just so happy with them. And so I think what we're seeing is the last gasps of the the patriarchy in a lot of ways. I'm thinking in terms of uh, Brexit or Donald Trump. Mm. I think of them as pretty parallel. Big mistakes. (laughs) Totally. But I'm also fascinated, You, in, I mentioned in the introduction, you know, you look at these images of fashion, of advertising, billboards and pornography, but you do not denigrate them. Why would I? If it wasn't for pornography, there'd be no internet. That's why it spreads so fast, you know. But okay, fashion, beauty, glamour. I think there's this kind of mixed reaction to it, but it's one of the few places where women actually have power. And historically, they were the editors of magazines. They were the designers. And that was like one place where no one could take that away. When I was growing up, my age group were used to their mothers were careers, nurses, teachers, librarians, and a glamorous job would be a stewardess. Now, your generation, the young boys and the girls, they see women that are CEOs of corporations and lawyers and doctors. That's going to change everything. Women wielding power is going to change the fear of women wielding power. And it's like the fear, I think, is all about, I mean, I don't mean to be talking just philosophy, not art, but that fear comes from the idea of women taking over. But what we're asking for is to share. And that's so painful for so many people. In a way, that's what my work is about. (laughs) I don't really say to myself, oh, I'm going to make something that confronts people. I swear to you, I'm totally intuitive. You know, I get paint on there and the painting tells me what to do. I put a few layers on and then I know what I have to get rid of and what I have to keep. So, I mean, I work with glass and steam and 
I can't have no control over that. The gods of steam and glass actually determine whatever I shoot, that's how it's going to turn out. So I work with chance and accident, and I don't know what my models are going to show up looking like. I'm doing all these portraits right now. I just say to them, you know, come here in the way you feel comfortable and you're going to feel beautiful. I said that to the boys and the girls. How are you going to feel really good? I'm not trying to make a 19th century portrait. I'm trying to get the personality in there. And it's different with a painting than it is with a photograph. Yeah. And also what's I think interesting about your work is that younger generations are really attracted to your work. So, you know, you've spoken about how you are interested in obviously these debased languages and everything that it cites the limbic system. So, you know, food, sex, shiny and sort of scary elements that confuse our notions of disgust and desire. I mean, I think this is also interesting. Why are we attracted to these images and why do you want to tackle that in painting and film? It's not like I have a choice. I really mean that. I don't have a choice. It's what my brain tells me I got to make. And for the longest time, I wasn't communicating to anybody. But I was so happy just making it. It didn't matter. I liked making them. And I was able to have a job teaching. And I still teach. I love to teach. So I could survive. I survived by teaching and by doing commercial jobs. And, you know, I didn't really make any money till I was in my 50s. And that's where I am now. I'm really thrilled just being able to make what I make and not anybody telling me, oh, you can't do that. And I used to have people come in all the time and say, you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you do this. But it's not like I had a choice in the matter. I had to do it. And no one, I think most of the artists I know feel that way. They just have to make what they make. And honestly, I'm pretty, I have a bad education. I'm educated, but I have a bad one. And I'm not terribly articulate other than visually articulate. I'm not verbally articulate. And I literally take, make what I make. And then people like you write about it or say what you just said in the introduction. I'll steal the hell out of that. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? Well, I'll just repeat everything you just said. Because I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's also so interesting, isn't it, as well? Because also, I mean, I think what excites me about your work, I have a friend who has a painter similar age to me called Louise Giovanelli. And obviously your work is completely different, but there is something about both of your work that is so exciting and you're so attracted to it. And you're so kind of confused by what you're looking at because it is so ambiguous. You use the crop and it's so kind of contradictory as well. It's sort of absent present. It's sort of lust, it's desire. I want you to bring your own history and your own trajectory. And that's where we'll have a a dialogue. If I tell you what to think, it's like going to a movie, a rom-com. You know exactly what's going to happen. Boy loses girl, boy gets girl in the end. And you don't remember it. It's like soothing, you know, it's soothing. But you won't remember it. When I'm attracted to other artists, it's because I've never seen it before. Like somebody who makes something, oh, wow, that is amazing. I just saw Talamandani. Have you seen that work? Oh, my God, she's filthy. (laughs) And brilliant. I just love that work. But I think as well, I'm so drawn to your work in part as well because of this. I guess there's this element of your work that kind of feeds me as well. 
but it's like your paintings are kind of like that. You can't really stop looking at them because it's as though they're attracting you, which I find so fascinating. And I wonder if it is why younger people are so drawn to your work, because it's almost as though you're sort of looking at this like crop of an iPhone screen or something, or you can't quite get to where you are, or you've put into tangible form this state of delirium or ecstasy or something. But it's- Oh, I love hearing this. This is music to my ears, must be. <laughs> because I was, you know, held in contempt for so long. This is heaven. Just being seen is everything to an artist, you know, and you articulate it so much better than I would. I have no idea why I make what I make, but it feels so right. Mm. But I, I sort of love the idea of the reactionary as well. You said this amazing quote. You once said, I'm always thinking of, in terms of what do we know exists, but you've never seen an image of it. Oh, that's true. That's actually what I'm looking for. Well, I haven't seen this before, but I know it's real. Like when I first started, I was like, you just put your finger under your nose and those little tiny hairs that are so soft. I actually thought, I'm going to paint every one of those. And I did. Yeah, I, I made a whole painting of just the hair on the top of your lip. Because mm. I know it's there. I feel it. I know what it looks like when you pull your socks down and there's lines in your leg. I thought, well, what? no one's ever made a painting of that, but that's real. No one's mm. ever made a painting of women, somebody dyeing their hair. You know, what does that look like? What are those clips? You know, what are those aluminum foil sheaths around the hair? That's sort of beautiful. And I could find beauty in that. Or even like very, very, very expensive shoes. If you're going to dance all night or you live in New York City, your feet are going to get dirty. <laughs> yeah. I love that painting of yours of the sort of dirty feet with the kind of diamond encrusted shoes as well. Well, I just, I take that idea and I push it so it's a little mm. too far. Because if it's just slight, you won't see it. You won't even notice it. I think if I take the idea and push it, then I, I could communicate. But, I, you know, some people are appalled by it. So I never know what the reaction is going to be. But I've got the point now where it doesn't matter because I have enough support that I could just make it anyway. And maybe the next generation will see it. That's just how it is. And the art world is ultimately fair. You will see this art. The artist might not be alive, but you will see the art. Mm. But I guess I'm so interested in the sort of mood that you create in your paintings as well and the sort of effect of pushing photorealism to the extreme. And it's as though you capture a mood or something intangible because you also you never really see these scenes for more than a minute or you're never concentrating on the hairs that are yeah, about yeah, your mouth yeah, or you're yeah, never yeah. concentrating on this. And I think what's amazing about your work is that they hold on or focus on that second of a moment, you know, whether in you are the sort of state of sort of sexual delirium or something. In some of your paintings, I feel like it's, you know, it's almost has this sort of addictive feeling or something in, in it capturing, capturing this sort of like purely ecstatic state. I mean, what atmosphere do you want to create in your work? That is great. That's what I want. I want people to uh, have a dialogue with what I'm making. Absolutely. This art historically, Louise Bourgeois, she had a show at the Guggenheim and on the end of the Guggenheim ramp was a piece she made the week before she died. You know, that's like glorious, you know, and she looked amazing. She looked so good. Alice Neal, you know, she was working up until the end and no one paid any attention to her at all. And those paintings just rocked. Mm. And, you know, that electric blue line, I was blown away. And everyone was always talking about the portraiture of Freud, you know, and I'm thinking, holy cow, she was 
just as good or better by far, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, I'm getting seen old. That's okay. I love it. And I hope it stays that way. But artist careers are so up and down. I asked a very famous artist once when I was, you know, nobody paid any attention to me, but we happened to be sitting at the same table. And I said, do you think it's true that artists have a hard time in the middle of the beginning of their career, the middle of their career, or the end of their careers? And he said, it's absolutely true. He was a rock star from the, from the age of 21. And he said, I'm having such a hard time now because I have to buy my paintings at auction. The collectors want so much money. I have to buy them. Otherwise, my market will, will collapse. I thought, wow, what a problem to have. <laughs> I was so over my head, you know, or most of the people I know. Uh, but I, that could be a na- major problem if you think about it for a minute. That's a terrible thing. Mm. But, I mean, you began your career in the 60s and 70s. I mean, what yeah. spurred you on at that time to look at how fashion and advertising sort of set the stereotypes of beauty, behavior, and sexuality? Well, when I was in school in the 70s, I really had one thing going for me. I could draw anything when I was a kid. And I learned that when I was five years old, that I could draw and I could copy anything. And I didn't have any other skills. So I knew I was either going to be a forger or an artist. (laughs) I actually thought about being a forger because I could copy anything. And so when I went to art school, I didn't know if I was going to be, you know, Uh, in advertising or in fine arts. And I saw it was just, it pointed so clearly that I was uh, in fine arts. And I was at a very doctrinaire grad school where art movements lasted years, like five years. I mean, before that, they lasted centuries. This was when, I guess, pop art just started coming into uh, its power in New York City. Andy Warhol was getting a lot of attention when I was in school. He came to talk at my school. And I was enamored. I thought the work was brilliant. And all the teachers were abstract expressionists at the school, and they just hated it. They thought it was just bullshit. And they really, really hated conceptual art, land art, anything that wasn't either abstract. You were a true artist if you were an abstract expressionist. And nowadays, I mean, that was one movement was the absolute opposite of the one before it, like classical work versus Rococo. But then nowadays, it's like the eye seems to crave what it doesn't see. Now movements are, you know, six months a year and then they move on. So pluralism has won. But there was a point where it's hard to believe this now, but art teachers in universities said this is the only true way to make art. And they believed it. And they made little second-rate, third-rate Abex paintings, or you were nothing. And my entire life, I was told, loosen up. So, you know, I did a lot of drugs in the 80s and 70s, 60s, too, and just so I could loosen up. <laughs> and I made shit. <laughs> I burned all that work. There's a real period in my life that I did really interesting work in the early 70s. But there's a five-year, seven-year period where there's a blank. I won't show any of that shit. It was so awful. The conversation in the art world was all about German expressionism at that time. And I could fake it because I could copy anything, but they were terrible. They had no legitimacy. And I was able to see that. I had teachers at the time telling me, 
well, you already know how to draw accurately. It's time for you to challenge yourself. So loosen up and then, then you'll be a real artist. And it's when I went back to my gift, which is this gift of being able to make things look like a copy. So I just stayed with what I did, even though I wasn't part of any conversation. I made all these paintings of linoleum floors with papers thrown on them. And now they people can really see them. They're interested in them. are like conceptual photorealism. But I had no choice. I just stayed with the gift, and I kept expanding it. And that's what I try and teach my students. The thing that comes really easy to you, that's the one you should really concentrate on. And don't, like I did, try and fit yourself into the conversation that's in the art world because it's not legitimate. It's not real. It really does have an aura. I believe that paintings do have that. Ah, There are certain people that have a great hand, you know, like Mary Heilman or Joan Mitchell. They have that hand that's so beautiful. And even though I could copy it, it looked fake. And when I went back to what I did well, that's how I was successful. And I tell that to my students, just look for your gift because you got this far, you have one, and exploit it. I had it from five years old that I could copy anything. I could draw. So it wasn't like I could be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, I barely got out of school. I was a really wild kid. I got put in jail at 16. (laughs) I could copy people's driver's licenses (laughs) so they could get into bars so I could make them older. I love that. I love that. But I'd also like to go back to your beginnings. You were born in Louisiana in 1948 and grew up in South Florida. You've described your parents who divorced when you were eight as glamorous and unreliable. I mean, tell me about that childhood. It was pretty tragic, you know, and then when I look back on it, but it was all I knew. So my mother was a drug addict. My dad was a, an alcoholic gambler womanizer. So I'd say uh, my childhood was not abusive in terms of, you know, I had plenty of food. I had, uh, I wasn't beaten. Well, I was, my brothers beat, well, we beat each other up. But believe me, in the South, there was corporal punishment. But um, I'd say I was really neglected and I wasn't taken care of at all. So by the time I was 12 years old, I learned how to take care of myself. My dad at one point gave my mother uh, child support for a while and she just gave it to me. And she said, take care of yourself, feed yourself. She was too fucked up to do anything. So what I ended up doing was drawing all the time. That was my that was my escape. I drew in the encyclopedia pages. They didn't give you know I didn't have paper to draw on, but they had lots of books. My parents were very smart, so I drew in the fly leaves of all their books. I just drew all day long on stationery on anything, and um, I watched movies all night. So I mean I did anything I wanted. You know I drove a car at the age of twelve to my friend's house. <laughs> I had no supervision, which I thought was great. You know, we slept on the beach, we skipped school. But, you know, I sort of saw myself getting out of there. I was a, it was right around the the era of the civil rights movement. I became a pretty, well, ineffectual uh, civil rights supporter. And then I went to University of Florida and it was uh, civil rights and and anti-Vietnam, and I became an activist. So I was a real disappointment to my family because my brothers were very successful. They thought of me as this total fuck-up, which I was. 
And um, I pretty much left home at 18 and didn't go back. And ended up at uh, Syracuse University and then from there to New York City. And then I went to a rehab. <laughs> and then everything fell into place when I got clean and sober. Yeah. When I went to University of Florida, I started working as a pop artist. I got bad grades in painting, but I got an A in photography. So I decided to major in photography. And um, that's when I thought, okay, I can take pictures of what I want to paint and draw. With painting, I could make whatever I shot the way I wanted. There was no Photoshop, none at all. When I discovered Photoshop, I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> And so as soon as I, I saw I could make what I wanted, but I loved the, I loved, uh, the way the paint looks. I mean, I look at every square inch of my paintings. That's why they take so long. So, I mean, I found a technique that I could make my love of copying. I made it into something I could make art out of. But it took years. It took a really long time to perfect this. I don't think I've perfected it yet. I keep learning all the time on these paintings. The paintings teach me what to do. And I work on a few of them at a time so that one corner will say, this sucks, you have to do it over or redo it or, you know. And, you know, I just listen to that voice. Yeah. But I think going back to those really early works that, you know, you meant uh, you made before Photoshop, for example, the Coal Ridge Tower series from 1969. Oh, the photos of my mother. This is interesting because when I, I did the hardcore porn series in 1989, and it was right around the time Jeff Koons made his heaven pictures that everybody hated that too. With him and Chichilina. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought they were brilliant, you know, and I thought, <laughs> you know, uh, we both got canceled basically, although he was a much bigger artist. I was a minor artist. I got sort of canceled and I got dropped from my galleries. And then I was in a, a show where I needed to make giant pictures. So I thought, what do I have? I have these photos I took of my mother in 1969, um, yeah. And for me, they were just pictures of my mother. My brothers and I still do not see what you see. You see a drug addict. I see mom, but people seem to like them now. But when I shot them, when I was in school, they were horrified, like, oh my God, that's your mother. I had waves of shame come over me and I didn't show them again until 1995. Uh, so people really responded well. And it sort of, what let me back into the art world because, oh, she comes from uh, dysfunction, so she must be a good artist. And that's sort of, you know, the story. They let me in because they took me seriously. I think what's so fascinating about this series of your mother, though, and I know that you see your mother, obviously. Mom, but as, as, a, as, yeah. a, as an outsider, I think they tie in so much to your recent work and the sense that they almost have this I mean for the audience they must look them up they're these quite evocative black and white images of your mother they're sort of dark some with electric lights some of just smoking a cigarette in bed I mean definitely of a drug addict but they're also sort of well they're a glamorous drug addict yeah before you're used to, you're not used to seeing high-end drug addiction you're used to seeing junkies in the street with needles in their arms yeah but like, but like, what is that enduring attraction to glamour that we have? Uh-huh. Well, my mother was a beauty, you know, and so becoming a drug addict, and she wasn't agoraphobic. She would leave the house to go have luncheon with her friends. Luncheon, I always say, because that's what she called it. And then she would have to 
go back to bed for days afterwards. I took her car to school every day. You know, when you were 12. Didn't, yeah, she <laughs> didn't do anything. You know, I had a couple of lessons from my dad when he came to visit. I thought I could do this. <laughs> so I went over to a friend's house and I went over curves and I was really, you know, a terrible driver, but it's the only way I could get around. This is Florida. But, you know, I got my license taken away three times before I was 21. You know, like I said, I was not a good kid. <laughs> and no one gave me a breathalyzer, by the way. They didn't exist. I love it. I, love I can it. talk my way out of anything. I'm so fascinated by this, like, enduring attraction to glamour because I think it really feeds into your later work when we sort of talking about the kind of contradictions of beauty versus desire versus the grotesque and pretty dirty because you want to be this woman you want to have this life but when we actually look beyond the surface of it it's empty my mother had these acrylic nails before it was popular but she didn't take care of them and so the fungus would grow underneath <gasps> she thought oh I'll buy this purse because she really was so fucked up I'll buy this you know, it looks like I got it at, you know, coach or something, but it looked like a plastic, you know, purse from pennies. She had wigs on in those pictures because she pulled out her hair. So I guess that that form of glamour that you're all talking about comes from that. But I didn't know that till I was in my 30s. And actually, one of my assistants pointed it out. That, wow, look at these hands. You know, I did all these hands tearing apart food. And uh, they had these long red nails, and they saw pictures of my mother, and they saw these long red nails. And thought, these are your mother's hands. I thought, wow, that's probably true. But you know, when do you make these connections? Yeah, because like you said before, you're making work reacting to the moment. Yeah, there's a, there's a subconscious that's always doing everything, really. Yeah. But I mean, at this time, you asked yourself, what is the subject matter that women never do? And your answer was pornography. I mean, why did you challenge this in the 1980s? Well, it's a long story, but I, w I walked out of the Mike Kelly show. And this was in the 90s. And here's Mike Kelly making art out of stuffed animals and candles melting wax on. And he made paintings out of sewed up stuffed animals that were in somebody's attic. And I thought, if a woman artist made that, nobody would pay any attention to it. And then I was leaving the gallery and I thought, if a woman did this, she wouldn't get any attention. Here's this intellectual from California taking something we all know that's kind of pitiful, you know, the pathetic, and making art out of it. And I thought, well, women have never made hardcore porn. They've made porn, though. I knew about... Carolee Schneeman working with nudity and sexual imagery. So I had to do hardcore because was does that change the meaning? Does it change the meaning if a female <laughs> uses sexual imagery? Because I thought there were all these artists that do it, but nobody knew about them. So I knew about these sort of women doing it, but I saw nobody doing cum shots, you know. So I thought, okay, I'm going to paint these cum shots and see what it means. And I thought I was like taking these images and making them for my own amusement. I wasn't trying to get images that turned me on. I wanted images that I, I thought were somehow funny or provocative. And I just made them and I made a show of them and I got excoriated from other feminists, like you're a traitor to feminism. And I know it all came from fear, but the idea of women owning or making images for their own pleasure and amusement was not in the vernacular. 
And I wanted to see, does it change the meaning? Back then, I was a youngish girl. I was, you know, late 30s. I was young enough that it was considered threatening. Whereas, you know, I saw Louise Bourgeois in that Robert Maplethorpe very famous photo of her holding this giant dildo. And everyone thinks she's adorable. And I thought, that's so interesting. Why is it when you're old, you can work with sexual imagery? When you're an old lady, when you're postmenopausal, But if a young girl works with it, they still get slut-shamed and really excoriated for it, and the culture really tries to tear them down. It's still super threatening. And I wish somebody would write about that. What is that all about? Women owning sexual power is very frightening to the whole culture and owning the agency of it. I mean, I shot Pamela Anderson because of the fact that she did own her own. I put her in parquet as a centerfold. Because she said at the time, I'm not a singer, I'm not a dancer, I'm a pinup. That's how I make my living. She owned the agency of what she was going to look like. And I thought, I got to show the, the beauty of this woman, you know. And I took all her makeup off and cut her bangs, and I made her really look gorgeous, I thought. Um, but, you know, anyone that, that couldn't, you know, was really making real sacrifices to be a, a, an animal rights activist 15, 20 years ago, that was a big deal. And she did that. And I was really, uh, I really admired mm. her for it. And she was slut shamed her whole entire life because she did that. So that's the hypocrisy that I really wish uh, your age group would really tear that apart. What's that all about? But I think it all comes down to power as well, doesn't it, as well? And who has yeah. actually dictated that gaze? Who has been the yeah. photographer shooting Pamela Anderson? A man, not you. You know, and you want to expose yeah. her beauty. You want to expose her uh, yeah. commitment Humanity, to humanity. Her empathy. Yeah, I was looking for the empathy, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's the really exciting moment that we're living through right now. All of that is shifting, like the male gaze, the female gaze, whatever. I mean, it's... I don't even know what the female gaze is. I've been trying to figure it out. People say, oh, you're making the female gaze. Well, what does that mean? But I think it's because we're in this really, really interesting shift in the world. It's like because of the internet, yeah. which funnily enough, like you said, is also driven through pornography. But at the same time, there has got to be a correlation between the rise of the internet and the rise of the sort of democratization of imagery as well. Yeah. Because more than ever, we're seeing powerful voices and powerful positions. Like for me, I began my career on Instagram. And if it wasn't for the internet, I wouldn't have this platform. I wouldn't be able to interview you because I would have to go through all these steps in a kind of patriarchal museum hierarchical yeah. system. And so it's so exciting that we are in, it's like, you know, again, this idea, I love what you were saying, you know, about reacting to the times that we're living in and we've got to kind of grab them while we can. And actually we grab them. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Exactly. And we've yeah. never seen this before because it's like when I watched Pamela Addison's documentary on Netflix the other day, it's like this woman is finally telling her story after yeah. being alive for six yeah. decades, you know? And that's like, yeah. because she finally has the power to do that. Being just, being just tortured yeah. for decades. Yeah by being the agent. She didn't have a Svengali behind her, you know. I saw the doc too. It's heartbreaking really how women having agency about sex is so frightening. And I don't know why more artists don't explore that. But I think it's so current 
that we can't even sort of put into words what it is at the moment as well. And it's like, you know, it's like it's like when I look at your work and I see these kind of ambiguity between the pretty and the dirty and the abject and the beautiful and the desire and the disgust. And actually it's alluring as well. And I love the idea as well that, you know, when I'm looking at those paintings that have steam all around them, it's like you capture this like intangible moment of the desire or ecstasy. The steam and the frost is all, you know, ambiguous because the whole idea of making it is ambiguous. I need the same distortion that all artists need to, in terms of charting the eye. You know, if you just put it out there as a photo, it's not as interesting if it has ambiguity. I need that metaphor. We're talking in metaphors only, as far as I'm concerned. You know, in a way, I I want there to be a lot of interpretations, not just one. That's really what I'm asking for, a lot of interpretations. But also the power of painting as well as a medium with time built into it as well. That's, you know, and, and uh, people don't even see the difference anymore. It's how quickly we forget how digital has erased the skill level of painting. Nobody cares. They can't see the difference. People come up to me all the time and say, do I have a painting or do I have a photo? And I think to myself, are you kidding me? You can't see the difference, you know, and um, they don't. But I think it's also because your paintings capture this such interesting, fleeting moment that is really impossible to almost capture on film as well. I can't capture it on film. If I have an image that works pretty well, and it happens very rarely, where I don't alter it at all, I crop it, then I'll make a photo. That's why I have so few photos, because I don't need to do anything to it. But the paintings, they have such an atmosphere or a mood that feels like I've been there in my life. I hope so. I hope so. I really mean it. You have to come with me everywhere I go and talk for me. <laughs> great, great. I love it. I love it. But you've obviously got your upcoming exhibition with your ongoing portrait series, which will debut at LGDR from the 12th of April. I mean, you've looked at people like Gloria Steinem, Lizzo, Lady Gaga, Michaeline Thomas. I mean, who are... Well, Monica Lewinsky. Let's see. The portraits are going to be Glenn Ligon, Roxane Gay, Monica Lewinsky, Lady Gaga... Michaeline Thomas. That's the first group. And I just shot Nick Cave and I'm shooting Sarah Z and Laurie Simmons and Tori Birch and other people I really admire because Tori does so much for women. It's just unbelievable. Why did you choose to immortalize these particular people? I admire them all. Yeah, I admire them all. I want to do other artists and I want to do politicians that I admire. They take a year to make each one, so it has to be somebody I'm really invested in and that I care about. I have to love the person, love what they're thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah. What do you want to capture through the portrait? I want it to look like them, but I still want to make a really good painting. And sometimes I have to sacrifice the way they look slightly to make a good painting. I have to find that balance, and I'm looking for a personality, a moment. Like Roxane Gay is giving me a side eye because that's who she is. <laughs> and I got Glenn Ligon laughing. And that's unusual, you know. I mean, he's very funny, but you don't see pictures of him laughing. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking for things like that. I'm looking for, Micheline Thomas is all about joy. You know, Gloria doesn't wear any makeup and she only wears black. And it's tough to make a portrait of somebody like that that's a good painting. 
she brought a really colorful scarf and I made her wear a ring. <laughs> so I had some points of interest that I could move around in. And so it was like, okay, but I still have the essence of Gloria. It's a challenge every single time. It's much harder than when I just work from a model. So I guess I wanted to challenge myself. I have one painting that I've worked on now for three years and it's still not ready. And so there's some of them I'm just keeping till the next show, till I get it right. Maybe I never will. Amazing. Um, Marilyn Minter, thank you so much. Um, as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a woman artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to Oh, them? God. I, you know, I'm just so in awe of Joan Mitchell. <gasps> oh, just I just worship her. And I read her biography and it's heartbreaking. Alice Neal, same thing. It's heartbreaking, those biographies. But I'm so in love with them. Would you say anything to Joan or Alice? Um, no, mostly I just say thank you. <laughs> thank you. You did it. You let you're a trailblazer. So many names flood. But I uh, thank God for all of them. You know, I, and I'm a steal from every one of them. <laughs> yes. Because of yeah. them, I'm going to get I, I'm going to get better because of them. So you're a joy to talk to. Thank you so much for your time. I can't well, wait to I'm see the show. I'm going to send you an email and we can meet in person. Come on over to the studio and I'll give you lunch. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Woman Artist Podcast with the fantastic Marilyn Minter. I am just in awe of her story and everything she does. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Woman Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 